What the series has been about the um, relationally anchored story that our created, creator intended for each of us to have. And each of our stories was meant, the creator's intention, to have a chapter in it where we reconnected with him, where we returned to our creator in trust, where we discovered from his perspective what's the truth about himself, what's the truth about life, who are we, why are we here, how are we supposed to live, what's the meaning of it, what happens after this life. And so there's one passage of scripture that we've used in this series of messages. It's the overarching passage. The apostle Paul was writing to a bunch of followers of Christ living in a Greek city called Colossae. And he said, for by him, and that him there, if you read the verses before it, it's speaking about Christ. For by him were all things created which are in heaven and which are in earth, things visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And that's talking about angelic uh, civilizations and government structures. All things were created by him. By the way, just something I've said each week, when you read in the book of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning God created. Here we are told it's Jesus that created. All things were created by him, Jesus. And the last phrase is important. What does it say? For him. That means that you, by name, me by name, you were created by Christ, and he created you especially for himself. Think of the most intimate relationship that you can imagine, a parent with a child, you know, and that's what it's saying, that, that from all eternity, you were on his heart, I was on his heart. It is the most normal thing in the world for a human being to relate intimately with their creator. It's not just for some religiously bent sort of folks. Let's go back to that passage. It goes on to say, Christ existed before all things, and this is really important, in union with him, all things have their what? proper place. I find my proper place when I'm united with him, when I trust him, when I understand his word and his will, and I start letting it mold and shape my life. I understand that this is the way I'm designed by my creator. Everything finds its proper place. My life, your life starts taking order. It, it has harmony. It has synchronicity. All these things happen when there's a chapter in our story where we return to Christ, our creator, in trust. And I hope that for most of us, uh, that chapter has occurred, but if it hasn't, there's probably never going to be a better day than this one before this Sunday is over. Well, each week we've looked at stories of other people in the New Testament that their story had that episode, that chapter where they reconnected with Christ, their creator, and we emphasized certain components of what their life was like in the past, and what I've urged you guys to do through this whole series is to take the time and to write your own story. And we divided it up real simple like this. My life before Christ, how I came to Christ, and my life since trusting in Christ. Now, this week, uh, we had a lot more stories come in. It was really wonderful. And we're urging you to do this in a, a condensed fashion. We know that some of us could put 100 pages together. But uh, I asked last week, and it was rather embarrassing, not for me, but for you. Uh, and I will again, how many of you have still not written your story? Let me see your hands. Bad Bad, bad people. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, each time someone has followed through, and you, you can see a number of them on the board out there or on the wall out there, each time someone has followed through, they say, man, this was such a good experience for me. And that's what I said from the beginning. There's something about taking the time. Um, I think we got a little problem here in the front, guys, whoever's in the back. Uh, anyhow, 
You okay? Anyway, um, one of the things that this does is it clarifies and solidifies your personal experience. You, you'll be able to look at who you were, what your life was like before you reconnected with Christ. You look at how you reconnected, and then the difference that's made since then. And this becomes very valuable, very stabilizing for you. But more important than it be stabilizing for you, uh, you now have a tool that someday at just the right time with just the right person, you could share your story with someone and you have no clue of how powerful that could be. We're reading these biblical stories from 2,000 years ago. They are still transforming lives to this day. Your story, something is you simply saying to somebody, because, you know, it's something that can't really be challenged. You're not trying to convert anybody. You're just saying, this is what my life was like before I reconnected with Christ, my creator. This is how I reconnected, and this is what it's been like since. It's a very powerful thing. If you don't have it, if you don't have it written down, you're not going to be very likely able to do it. So bear with me scolding you a bit, and, uh, and please, uh, take the time. You'll, you'll be so glad that you did. And then after you write it out, what I've been urging people to do when they pass them in is start praying for an opportunity, just the right time, just the right person, to share your story. Uh, you might be off in the adventure of your life when you do that. Okay, so that's kind of the context of what this entire series of messages have been. This is the fourth message. We have two more to go in the series. And the theme today is... Till I met you, I was so out of control. And I suspect that many of us in here could look back at episode seasons in our life where we have to say, to be very honest and transparent, man, I was out of control at that point. Or there may be some specific area of your life where you say, man, I was so out of control in that area. But it might not be past tense. I mean, the story is ongoing. My story, your story. We're always in a change process, always in a developmental or deterioration process. And it could be that right now here this morning, it's okay, don't feel bad, feel good, because it means that God is going to help you to cope with this, to finally turn a corner on it maybe. But maybe this morning, truth be told, you are still out of control in some area of your life. And, and we know what this is about. I mean, it could be any area. It, it could be, you know, your spending is out of control. You really have lost control of your ability to not spend every, every cent that goes through your hands. Or maybe, maybe you're addicted to something. Uh, could be alcohol, could be drugs, could be pornography. I mean, there could be any number of things where you're out of control. So if that's the case, let's, let's calm down. Let's be humble. God's not rejecting anybody. He's not scolding anybody. He's not casting anybody off. But, he, but he's here to try to bring us to truth so he can start a healing process. Because, listen, when God is allowed to lead in our lives, he always brings self-control back to us. That's one of the marks. When God is operating in our life, we, are, we have self-control. We're not controlled by habits or impulses or feelings and things like that. I'm going to develop that for you in a bit in a minute with a little diagram I'll put together. Well, today, we're going to deal with a char character that... Uh, is as out of control as anyone that we could imagine. Someone that, that evil had gotten such a grip in this man that he was completely, literally possessed. He had lost his entire identity to evil. We, we call it demonic possession. It's rare. It's extraordinarily rare, but it's real. And we're not going to emphasize the demonic possession part at all today. We're going to talk about what, what evil does to us, how it gains control, and we lose control. It offers freedom, but steals it actually from us. But I want to start by reading a story from one of our folks 
because the question that always comes when you'll see this man's case in a minute when we get into scripture. He is a pitiful specimen, completely demonized, completely out of control, self-destructive, a danger to himself, a danger to other people. And the question comes, well, how did he get that way? I mean, you know, did he just suddenly overnight wake up and he was demonized and he lost possession of his, his mind, his emotions? Well, no, that's not the case. That's not the way it works. If you've done any study at all of demonic activity or supernatural activity, you know that it never, ever works that way. It's generally speaking a very slow slide, a gradual experimentation, knowingly or unknowingly, with some spiritual activity that God has put parameters around and said, don't enter there, don't deal with entities in those dimensions because it's very dangerous. But the person slowly slides into these experiences. That's one way that a person gets demonized. It's extraordinarily rare, so don't freak out. Um, But it also can happen in a different way. It could be that someone in my family, your family, was open to these activities and becomes demonized, and they bring it home to us. And you become a victim. It's kind of like if if somebody were to go out, uh, let's say your dog went out, and was looking in the woods and somehow, bizarre situation, finds a piece of uranium. It's radioactive. It's very dangerous. The dog brings it back into the house. It doesn't matter if you know it's there or not. It doesn't matter if you're doing anything right or wrong. You're still going to be, you know, diseased from the radioactivity. Sometimes when demonic activity has grabbed a hold of one person in a family, it can just keep being passed down through that family. Don't get spooked. This is extremely rare stuff in America. It's not so rare in other foreign lands. But um, to give you a little bit of context, and, and I'm going to read a story, but, but I want to set it up a little bit differently than I did in first service gang back there, so don't, don't, don't fear. If I could go to that quote by Mr. Gallagher. This guy's name is Richard Gallagher, a board-certified psychiatrist and a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. So this guy has great credibility uh, behind what he does. Now, bear with me, and I'm going to read a paragraph of him describing himself. He says, for the past two and a half decades and over several hundred consultations, I've helped clergy from multiple denominations and faiths to filter episodes of mental illness, which represent the overwhelming majority of cases from literally what is truly the devil's work. It is an unlikely role for an academic physician, but I don't see these two aspects of my career in conflict. Conflict. The same habits that shape what I do as a professor and psychiatrist Open-mindedness, respect for evidence, and compassion for suffering people led me to aid in the work of discerning attacks by what I believe are evil spirits and just as critically differentiating these extremely rare events from medical conditions. So here's this guy who has great uh, academic credibility and yet he's consulted on hundreds of these situations and he differentiates between you know, emotional, mental illness, and real demonic possession. Emphasize, again, the rarity of it. Now, the message is not going to center in that. I'm starting there, and we're going to go somewhere else. But let me read you now uh, one of our own folks' story. Her name is Sheila. And this gives that how-does-it-happen kind of a thing a little bit more clearly. She starts her story, I was raised in the faith, but the walls my family erected as a shelter against an unsafe world weren't high enough to protect me from the unspeakable, from unspeakable traumas. I was a sophomore in high school when the pain became so overwhelming I was full of despair without any hope and I contemplated how I would take my life. 
It was then that I heard a voice, not audibly, but within my spirit, and it said, if you're going to just give your life away anyway, and you don't care about it, why not just give it to me? Because I really want it. I have a plan for you. Give me a chance to do something amazing with your life. And I said, yes, okay, it's yours. She skips ahead to college. She says, when I was an undergrad in college, I really felt completely dependent on God. I clung to Jesus during the time, and I was involved with campus ministry. And in the four years that I was there, I never once got drunk, I never, and I continued to save myself for my future husband. Despite the fact that I knew God's hand was on my life sustaining me and guiding me, when it came to romantic, interpersonal relationships, a different story was unfolding in my life. Despite forgiving the people in my life who were responsible for the trauma that I experienced early in life, I carried this incredible pain in my heart. I asked God, if you love me, how could you let those things happen to me? And my cry became, I don't trust you or who you say you are. A good God would have intervened. So I set out to seek healing for myself. It started with a plant-based diet. And then I went from there to acupuncture and meditation as a practice, which to my surprise completely cured my anxiety and panic attacks. Excited by the results, I listened to positive affirmations on a daily basis, sometimes hours a day coming and going to work. One thing led to the next, and I became a student of interpreting auras and chakras and crystal healing, meditation, chanting, and healing workshops until I found myself finally as a certified Reiki practitioner or instructor. I listened to what the world said about spirituality, and I liked what I heard. It went something like this. You don't have to worry about getting it all right in this lifetime. You have many lifetimes, as many as you need. God is patient. God is nothing more than your higher self in another dimension. An older, wiser you looks down upon you, guiding you, and leading you always. The only one wrong spiritual path are those that say there's only one way. All roads lead to the same place except, the follow, except for following Jesus. He preaches intolerance, judgment, and damnation. He's outdated. I had this whole new circle of friends and gurus, and I felt magical, full of limitless possibility. I saw a bright future on this path. I believed that this path was leading me to the fulfillment of all my desires and dreams. But then I started to see the cracks. It started with a cancer scare, and then suddenly mental confusion came over me. Then suddenly, typical illnesses that wouldn't uh, normally be difficult to get rid of, they, they just wouldn't go away, even with rounds of antibiotics. I knew I wasn't depressed, but somehow I felt oppressed by something. I felt this feeling of contraction and pressure to take the next step into communicating with guides in other dimensions. There are intelligent, sentient beings in other dimensions who know we are more likely to accept their possession of us if we believe they are simply forces. And then she writes all separate, evil is real. I have to do some summarization. She said that she started listening more carefully to the teaching here. She started reasoning through some of it. And uh, it was making more and more sense, and it drew her deeper into God's Word to study it more deeply for herself. And she concludes by saying this, I guess I just got to the point where I came into agreement with Jesus. Following His principles is the only way that the heaven we long for will ever be possible. The only way we could create the sort of heaven on earth is if every single one of us followed Jesus' heart. And that's when I knew 
I wanted to be in his kingdom because his kingdom is the world I would create if I had that kind of power. She goes on to say that, I guess you could say it has taken me almost 40 years to say this. I trust him. I trust he is who he says he is, and I trust his process that he has ordained for me, and I long to fulfill his vision for my character. She goes on to talk about how since then she's started doing some experimenting and serving God in various ways, and then she ends this way. Since returning to Christ, I am living like I am loved. Um, that's a very powerful phrase, and it's not as easy as it sounds. So that, that's Sheila's story, and her story gives us a picture of how someone can end up like this man that we're going to read about. Completely loss, uh, complete loss of personality and control because of a demonic entity that took possession. But it's a slow slide. It's dabbling by some of these things. Now, we're, we're offering something. I guess it's on the tables as we go out. It's a sheet that we put together for you. And this sheet just gives you some things to look at. You know, maybe you're interested, maybe not. But, it, it, for example, one side has questions like this. Have you ever been hypnotized or gone into otherworldly trance states of consciousness by means of drugs or hypnotic suggestion? Have you or any of your family or friends been involved in the occult, metaphysical, or the New Age movement? These questions help you to know if you have inadvertently been exposed to some of these things. It's unlikely that it's bothered you at all. It doesn't hurt to check. And then on the other side, we give you this entire huge list of um, open-door gateways that can lead someone into these uh, experiences with these other dimensional beings. And when I say other dimensional beings, folks, I'm talking about what Scripture calls fallen angels. The Scripture teaches that one-third of God's angels rebelled against him, and uh, they aligned with one leader are now trying to, you know, completely thwart all of God's good purposes for people. Anyway, that's an aside. I'm going to get real practical now about this message. So let's turn. We're going to do one more long reading in Gospel of Mark. So go ahead and turn in those Bibles that are near you to Mark chapter 5. It'll be page 1136. We're going to read this man's story who was so out of control until he met Jesus. And again, page 1136, the Bible's near you on the chair, starting in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It says, So they came to the other side of the lake, the region of the Gerasenes. Just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs and met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he bowed down before him. Then he cried out with a loud voice, Leave me alone, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God. I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, My name is Legion, for we are many. This man was inhabited by many of these demonic entities. Verse 10. He begged Jesus repeatedly. This is the Legion, the demon. He begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. There on the hillside, there on the hillside, there was a great herd of pigs, pigs was feeding. And the demonic spirits begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. Jesus gave them permission, so the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs. Then the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake, and about 2,000 were drowned in the lake. 
Now the herdsmen ran off and spread the news in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. The one who had, who had the legion, and they were the one who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man reported it, and they also told about the pigs. Then they asked Jesus to leave their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed asked if he could go with him. But Jesus did not permit him to do so. Instead, he said, go to your home and to your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you. There's the story. Tell your story, man. Tell that the Lord has done for you and that he has had mercy on you. So he went away, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis, that's the ten cities, what Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. So here we see a life without self-control. We, uh, we see a man that evil had gained such a footing in him that his life was self-destructive. It was socially destructive. He was a danger to himself. He was a danger to people around him. He was miserable. He was in torment. He had a fascination, a fixation with death living among the tombs. And his life was completely a daily torment. So we said, how does a person get this way? Well, well, it's unlikely that the man intentionally got in this condition. The likelihood is he was exposed to some things, some experiences, spiritual activity that gradually, slowly opened him up until he fully lost possession of himself. And it's usually the way it is in our own life in more practical ways. It's not as though we ever intend to develop a habit that's going to get out of control and start to be harmful to us and maybe harmful to those around us. But it happens. So we have to take a look at the way God's originally built us. Um, put together a little, little diagram here for you. This is from a passage in 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 23. But it says that uh, we're spirit, soul, and body. There's three components to our makeup. Uh, spirit, if you, you look at it the way it's divided in Scripture, it's, it's our reason. In fact, when it says about Jesus in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Well, the word there, it's a Greek word, logos, or logos, logos, and it means reason. The Greek philosophers of the day used it. And so reason is that component in man, in humans, that is the godlike component, essentially more godlike. It's, it's that image-bearing component, as well as soul and body. But anyway, this is the way God originally constructed us to function. Our reason was meant to be enlightened and united to Christ. Uh, we were to know God's will, God's word. It was supposed to be in our minds. Our conscience, which is the moral uh, faculty, it was meant to ca be calibrated by God's word. Conscience, you can't trust. A conscience will calibrate itself to any number of standards. But our conscience was originally meant to be calibrated to God's word. Now, it goes down. Our spirit, our God-enlightened reason, and our conscience were meant to govern our soul. Uh, our soul consists of our mind. You know, we can think about various things, our emotions, our feelings. That's what that is. And then our will, our decision-making faculty. So our God-enlightened reason and conscience were to guide what we put into our minds and what we fixated our minds on, which was then to control what we feel and how we respond to our feelings was to be controlled by our will. The next level is the body. The body carries out these things. Now, here's what evil does. Evil completely scrambles, completely scrambles this order until it takes possession of us and we lose control. When this order is in place, we have control. God always wants us to have control, um, but let's just show you what, 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 what can happen. Let's say that 
today in particular, a lot of emphasis is given to emotions. You know, hey man, just pursue your passion. Just whatever you feel, just do it. Nobody can tell you what's right or what's wrong. If you feel it's good for you, it's good for you. Just do what you feel. Well, when a person functions like that, your feelings, your emotions get disproportionately large and it starts to control what you think about. It controls your will. It can enslave your will. And then when it can get into your body and certain practices get into the physical realm, the addictive potential, it gets really powerful then. So evil scrambles this. The reason is not enlightened and united to Christ. It's darkened. We don't know who we are. We don't know why we're here. We don't have God's revelation. We don't know the truth about God. We don't know the truth about life. We don't know how we're designed. We don't know how we're designed to live. It's darkened when we block out God and his word from that component. Our conscience, like I say, it can be miscalibrated on all kinds of standards of today. By today's standards, you can do nearly anything except murder somebody, and it's pretty much cool. So this is the way God really originally constructed us. And when we trust Christ, he's going to restore this order. And this order gives us self-control. We don't have to be led by our feelings. We don't have to be led by our body, our bodily compulsions and things like that. Okay, now let me show you this in a broken fashion. In the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 1. And if you were to read the verses that go before it, it's talking about people that all things considered, even though there was compelling evidence for God, his existence, his goodness, his worthiness, that people just said, all things considered, I don't want anything to do with this being. And so it picks up, it says, and since they did not consider it worthwhile to hold on to the true knowledge of God, God handed them over to a corrupted mind. That corrupted mind is, is that diagram I just showed you, but with the reasoning faculties full of darkness and the conscience miscalibrated and disproportionate development of maybe the, the feelings or things like that. So God handed them over to a corrupted or a broken, a, a kind of a misformed mind to do the things that should never be done. So here's some of the natural things that result when a person has this broken state of mind. They're filled with every kind of unrighteous. God designed us to function one way, a right way. This causes us to function in an unright way. It brings evil, it brings greed, it brings wickedness. They're full of envy and murder, quarreling, deceit, and malice. They're gossipers, it goes on. They leave a trail of destruction and suffering wherever they go, and the way of peace they do not know. You see, when evil gets a, a kind of a foothold in us, it increasingly, we lose control of ourselves, and it brings all kinds of destructive tendencies. It, it's kind of a, a fun thing to think about, or a funny thing, that you know, churches are notorious for always talking about sin and always talking about, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. You know, and so churches kind of get a black eye for being negative places. Oh, all you guys ever want to talk about is sin and don't, 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 don't. You know, I'm um, just curious. How many here have children? Can I see your hands? How many times have you said don't to your children? <laughs> How many times have you said no to your children? <laughs> How many times have you said do this, don't do that? You couldn't count, right? It's too many to count. Well, is this because you're trying to spoil their fun? You're trying to box them in and take the joy out of their life? Is this because you just are on a power trip and you like control? Or is it because you love your kids and you know things they don't? And you're trying to tell them things that you know, they don't know, but you know are ultimately for their good. When you go to a doctor, does the doctor talk to you about your favorite sport? Or does the doctor talk to you about sickness? How many, when you go to your doctor, the doctor's talking to you about sickness and disease. Can I see your hands? And yet you still go. <laughs> you don't consider it a negative experience. Why? 
because you know your doctor wants you to have the best life ever, to be healthy. And the only way you, the doctor can get you to have the best life ever and to be healthy, that doctor must talk to you about any potential sicknesses and diseases and wants to rid you, rid you of those. You tell your kids, don't, don't take the butter knife and put it into the light socket. And the kid's are like, but this is fun. This is fun, you know. Right. Why? You're trying to protect the child. God, in his word, talks a lot about sin. Sin is not an arbitrary set of commandments and things that he comes up with. It's the creator, the designer of us, our spirit, soul, body. And he's saying, listen, this is the way I design you. It's delicate. It's beautiful. These things all have to work together. They have to mesh perfectly. And when they do, you can have love, the capacity to be unselfishly devoted to others and to do good to them. You can have joy in spite of the circumstances that come and go. You can have peace and so on. You can become the Christ-like person that God always intended you to be. And this life can be full of purpose and meaning, and it can carry right on to eternity. So he's, he's talking to us about sin because it's like a physician or it's like a parent. It's saying, you, you have to eliminate these things, son. you got to get rid of these things, daughter. These things are going to kill you. They're going to eat your lunch. They're going to jam up your life. And so churches should not be thought of as negative places. They should be looked at as very positive places because they help us to to see how we can have best life ever, even in this very difficult world. So Jesus goes on to emphasize this same thing, that evil gets in and takes away our will. It enslaves us. Jesus talking to his men, he, says, he answered them, he says, I tell, tell you the solemn truth, everyone who practices, say the word. You don't like to say it. Go ahead, say it. Everyone who practices what? Sin. <laughs> we don't mind doing it. We just don't like saying it. <laughs> everyone who practices sin is a what? slave of sin you lose control if you continue to follow my teaching jesus is saying however you're really my disciples or you're really my followers and the result will be you will know the truth truth about god the truth about life the truth about the way you're designed what's good what's not good for you you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free from destructive living you'll have freedom as opposed to losing freedom sin always causes enslavement bad habits take over whether they're mental emotional spiritual or physical. So if the son meeting himself sets you free, you'll be really free. One of the things we need to say, say more about in churches too, churches should be talking about the fact that our God and our creator, Jesus, he loves us so much. He actually wants us to experience freedom in this life from everything that jams up our life, meaning sin. We really are supposed to be freed, not just from the penalty of sin. We are to be free from sin. That is what he came for. They said of Jesus when he was born, they shall call him Emmanuel, for he shall save his people from their sins. Sin is what's eating our lunch. Sin is what's you know, controlling the, our, our life in a negative way. And so God, of course, wants to help us to be free from that. So here's a quote from a book that I've used before. I really like it. It's called Finishing Strong by a guy named Steve Farrar. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. And as we tell our stories in here, most of us, if not all of us in this room, could, could say that's a very powerful, true statement. I've experienced some of that. Here's a little box I put together real quick for you. Evil enslaves, righteousness frees. Evil destroys, righteousness develops. Evil hurts, righteousness heals. Evil makes us dangerous. This man, this demonized man was a danger to himself and to others. Righteousness makes us safe, safe people. 
People who don't need anything and just want to serve somebody else and bless them. That's what rightness brings to us, living the way that God designed us. So this man, again, he gives us a picture of what evil wants to do. It wants to take away our freedom. It wants to make our lives miserable. But it always masquerades as offering us something good, initially pleasurable, initially exciting, some kind of initial powerful experience, even if it's supernatural or not. So let's look at life with self-control restored. Jesus heals this man. He casts out these demons. The demons uh, cost somebody a lot of money. 2,000 pigs cost somebody a lot of money. That's probably why those people said, Jesus, get out of here. You're ruining our business. <laughs> they were Jews. They shouldn't have had pigs anyhow, but they, but they did. And so, um, you know, he, he bids them away. And, and this man that's now, you know, in control of himself, the first thing he wants to do, he's genuinely attracted to Jesus. He says, I want to follow you. I want to go with you. Um, he had somehow very quickly become convinced that Jesus was utterly trustworthy, convinced that evil is always destructive and to be avoided. And he was humble and teachable. That's what you call conversion. I just, just gave you the four components of it there. And Jesus, interestingly, says, no, 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 no. I want you to come with me. I got something, in essence, more important for you to do. I want you to go right back to the the capitalist, the 10 cities around here where everybody's familiar with you and your story, man. They knew you ran around like a wild man with no clothes, that chains couldn't hold you, um, that you were destructive to yourself, destructive to other people. I want all them to see your transformed life. You need to tell your story. Let people know God is good. He's always going to bless you. He's always going to build you. He's always going to develop you. If you're wondering about the strength, why did this guy, was, why was he able to smash chains, smash shackles, rip shackles, iron shackles to pieces? Demons, um, if you study scripture out and try to figure who are these demons, uh, Christians have taught for hundreds of years that they're, they're fallen angels. And scripture clearly teaches one third of the angels rebelled against God. But there's no reason to believe that demons are angels. Angels are big, bad, and powerful. They're still free. They're on the loose. Second Peter chapter 2 in the book of Jude chapter 1, it does say that a few of them have been imprisoned because they've done such outrageous things. But Ephesians 6 teaches very clearly that most of these fallen, rebellious angels are loose. They're, they're in other dimensions. They're, even Satan himself appears in heaven just about every day accusing other people, it says. So who are these demons? Where, where did they come from? What are they? Well, if you read in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and add verse 5, you find a very rare phenomenon that had occurred at that time. It says that these angels, these sons of God, saw that the daughters of men, meaning human women, were attractive, and they came down, took on human form. Angels can do that. They can morph. They can shapeshift. And they had sex with them. The Bible's very clear about it. And they produced an offspring race, a, a, a hybrid race, half angel, half human, called the Nephilim. And it says that they had tremendous strength and they grew to outrageous size. So when these entities died, these Nephilim that were not exactly human, not exactly angelic, what do you do with them? And it seems that God has imprisoned their spirits on this earth until the final judgment. And that's why they always want to get back in a body of some kind. They're used to being in a physical body. And that's where the strength comes from to shatter chains and shatter shackles and things like that. These Nephilim half-angel entities were incredibly powerful. Uh, again, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. You can read about it on your own. So just a little bit of background. Now I'm going to get back, back to the practical thing. So the man's got a life now. He's got a story. He's not a threat to anybody. He's not a danger to himself. He has wholeness. He has order. He has peace. And he's going to tell his story to others. 
And that's exactly what God wants to happen in my life and your life. We may, let me rephrase that, we all have times and experiences in our life where we, we have areas where we've lost control, even as followers of Christ. And God wants us to get that control back, and he wants us to share the stories of peace and joy and freedom that that brings to us when God's order is restored. Listen to this verse from uh, 1 Timothy. Paul writing to Timothy, who was overseeing a church in Ephesus. He says, he's talking about Jesus, by the way. He says, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, truth about God, truth about life, truth about sin. He means saved from sin. It goes on to say, and they will come once they know the truth, God's truth. They will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap where they are held captive to do his will. Now, the devil's trap, it's not, it's not demon possession. Like I say, it's rare. And don't be thinking that the devil's on your shoulder all the time whispering in your ear because the truth is neither you or I are that important. Okay? He's not, he's not omnipresent. Uh, he, he, he's a big philosopher. He's a, he's a big, big, wide, broad stroke character. He created a lot of systems, philosophies, false religions, world governmental systems and things like that. But what he does do and how he traps us, according to that passage, is, is unless we've returned to Christ and know that we're forgiven and know that we can receive immortality, eternal life, that this life is just a developmental journey. It does, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. Unless we know that, the scripture says in Hebrews 2.15, we are gripped by the fear of death. And it causes us to live fatalistically and desperately. You say, what do you mean? I'm not afraid of death. Yeah, you are. You just don't know it. Here's what it does. Because you and I don't know when we're going to die, we start living, first of all, governed by trying to stay alive. Self-preservation starts to govern us. The second thing that kicks in is since I don't know how long I'm going to be here, I might as well get as much pleasure as I can because I don't know who I am, why I'm here, or what the purpose of life is, what's the meaning. I don't know what the afterlife is. So then self-gratification takes over. So our souls, once again, get all scrambled. Our desires start to control nearly everything that we do and think. And so we live desperately. You know, I don't know how long I'm going to live here, so I'm going to get all the gusto I can while I can. And that's how Satan controls us. It's philosophically. It's not like he's showing up and knocking on your door and saying, uh, hey, I want you to do this, you know. And, and a lot of Christians get creeped out and get creepy by thinking that Satan is talking to you all the time. So if you think Satan's talking to you, it's not. It's just your own mind in most cases, okay? You and I are not that big and powerful enough for him to give us that personal attention. So... Let me get ready to close down a little bit. Here's what God wants to do to bring us to that freedom. Righteousness brings freedom, whereas evil always brings that deterioration that I talked about. There's a portion of Scripture in Galatians, and it starts this way. He says, I say, be guided by the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. You understand that? You and I can only experience as much of the Spirit of God as we understand and have knowledge of the Word of God. I say be guided by the Spirit, and you won't carry out your what kind of desires? Selfish desires are the result of us living fatalistically, desperately. Don't know, don't know when I'm going to die. Might as well get all the pleasure I can as well as I can. Don't know who I am, why I'm here. A person's selfish desires are set against the Spirit, and the Spirit is set against one's selfish desires. There's this interior uh, conflict. They are opposed to each other. So you shouldn't do whatever you want. How many have experienced that interior desire? You kind of know what's right. You know what God's will is. But then you feel this pull to do, pull inside you to do something that's not right. How many have ever experienced that? Can I see your hands? Yeah. And if you're a Christ follower, that's a healthy sign that the Spirit of God is operating in you. But it should be that you then choose to do what the Spirit says. And you have that freedom now. 
Because Christ has, again, uh, separated out your spirit, regenerated it, given it power, light, and all that kind of thing so that it can control your soul and ultimately your body. The fruit of the Spirit, or the result of us being guided by the Spirit, doing what the Spirit teaches, the result of it, the fruit, is love. We become more loving people. We have the capacity for unselfish devotion to the good of others without wanting anything in return. We have joy. We, 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 we kind of feel good in our own skin. It's not about things good going on. It's just about I have joy because I'm a benevolent being that loves God and loves people. I have peace. I may be going through all kinds of storms in life, but I have peace. I know who am I. I know why I'm here. I know where I'm going. I know what God's doing. I know what his plan is. I have increasing patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And what's the last one? Self-control. God always gives us self-control. Evil always takes away our control. You don't have to plant weeds, do you? Weeds grow on their own. Right? You don't have to go, I'm going to plant a garden of weeds here. But if, but if you're going to plant some flowers or some vegetables or something like that, you know, you've got to, you've got to get the soil just right, and then you've got to protect it from, you know, pests and spray it and do all this stuff. And righteousness, God's way of living, the way we're designed to live, ironically, follow with me on this, it's hard. It's not automatic. What seems to be easier and automatic is evil, just like the weeds. Why? Why would God set it up like that? Because he wants authentic relationships with people. He wants us not to be motivated by fear, not to be motivated by selfish desire. He wants us to be genuinely attracted to him, genuinely attracted to rightness of living, his rightness of living, genuinely attracted to his kingdom so that everything we do, we're, we're willing to discipline ourselves, we're willing to deny our selfish desires so that we can become like Jesus. We are convinced that he's trustworthy. We are convinced that sin is always destructive. We are humbly teachable. And so he wants us to want it. He wants us to make the effort. And he sits back because he will not impose on our freedom. Evil will. Evil wants to get more and more possession. And evil will take any little inroad we give it. Evil is not our friend. It's not the spice of life. It's always destructive. I'm going to close with a statement that initially is going to sound a little bit, of, a little bit old school preachy, but bear with me and let me, let me do a little work with it. It's by a guy named D.A. Carson. He's a professor and theologian. And he says, people do not drift toward holiness. Take that word holiness and think healthiness or being the Christ-like kind of person that God intended me to be. People don't drift toward Christ-likeness or holiness. Apart from grace-driven, what is that next word? Effort, effort. We're not going to grow spiritually. We're not going to develop with that effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. He goes on. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the undiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. So the freedom that Christ offers us, it is a cooperative freedom that we have to want, but it's authentic, it's real. And just as he freed this man from outside forces, he will free us from interior forces if we want that to occur. 
So let me close by just asking a few things. Um, you can't do a message like this without at least throwing out, is it possible that some of us in here, and this is why I urge you to get that little sheet of paper, that little printout we did, is it possible that maybe some of us in here have become, uh, without meaning to, uh, we've exposed ourselves maybe to some dark spiritual experiences and entities. If so, it would be wise for us to find that out and to try to extricate ourselves from that. Uh, Sheila's story, think of Sheila's story. She went through some difficult things. Um, and then the more practical likelihood is, is that some of us in some area of our life, we are out of control. And as we sit here today, we're still unable to see the control in some area of our life that we know we'd like to see and that God would like to see. This is, this is an invitation then from God to say, you don't have to keep living this way. You may have to do some work. You may have to do some soul searching. You may have to get some help. But this is God's loving invitation saying, come on, let's get you free. You, 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 you've been out of control in this area for too long. It's, it's just getting more and more destructive. Let, let's, let's give you the life you were always meant to have. And then lastly, it could be that some of us, we're just like this guy. We haven't yet reconnected with Christ our creator. Our story doesn't have that chapter in it yet. We've never made that decision. I'm going to put my trust in Christ and I'm going to follow him fully for the rest of my life. And I'm going to follow him freely and I'm going to follow him forever. I'm going to become a Christian. Uh, maybe you've thought about it, you've considered it, but you've never actually said, let the rest of the world do what it wants. I'm putting my trust in Jesus and I'm going to follow him. Maybe this is the day you'll make that decision. Let, let's pray. Father, you know that some of us particularly that have lost control in certain areas of our life, we feel so uncomfortable about it. We don't even want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it. Uh, help us to resist that, to come close to you, to know that you love us, you're for us, you're not condemning us. You just want to free us. And if there are other decisions, important ones, that some of us need to make today, continue to speak to our hearts and minds even after this service ends. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.